Hello and welcome back. And you are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, the policing scrutiny continues on issues from use of force to broken windows policing to traffic stops and other enforcement operations. Communities say they are left out of the loop when it comes to how their local law enforcement agencies operate. Is it time to provide more interaction and transparency in how we deal with policing communities and policies? Today, I have two great experts in the field of police and public policy. I have Dr. Daryl Champion. He's a professor emeritus of justice studies at Methodist University in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and an adjunct faculty in security management at Webster University in St. Louis. His primary interests are police leadership, police training, critical thinking, and emotional intelligence, particularly as they apply to community policing. He's held a number of leadership positions throughout his career in the military, academia, and community organizations. He's taught for over 45 years at the undergraduate and graduate level at Methodist University and as uh, adjunct faculty at Webster University and Guilford College. He's currently working on developing a program called Police Paradigm Pioneers 2100, which will focus on assisting police leaders in recognizing new ideas and concepts for implementation in policing, plus sharing scientific research on topics of interest to police leaders. Also with us is retired Chief Harold Medlock. He served as Chief of Police at Fayetteville Police Department. He served over two decades with Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department in a variety of assignments, promoting through the ranks. He is a graduate of the FBI National Academy. He's a senior management institute of police, PERF graduate as well. And he actively served on a number of law enforcement and social issue boards, including the North Carolina Governor's Crime Commission, the North Carolina Police Executives Association, and the North Carolina Criminal Justice Training and Standards Commission, and the North Carolina Commission for Racial and Ethnic Disparity. Well, welcome, Dr. Champion and Chief Harold Medlock. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having us today. So how important is it to start um, showing some transparency between law enforcement and the community? Well, I think it's important. Uh, in fact, I think it goes to the core of policing and the idea that, you know, policing is really born of several principles. Uh, one is kind of the law of agency, which policing is the agent. The principle is the society, which basically influences policing. And, you know, when you look at the current situation today, the relationship is strained between policing and communities uh, throughout the, the U.S., and I see it as a cornerstone, a cornerstone to actually uh, building trust and uh, accountability uh, for the police. And I think it's just essential that we revisit it. And we've seen that the presidential uh, task force on um, 21st century policing emphasized it in pillar one and pillar two. So we know it's important. Uh, we just need to look to trying to develop a better transparency. Yeah, and, and Jim, I think uh, from my perspective, uh, opening up your doors uh, of the police department to the community 
opening up your policies, your procedures, <clears throat> the way you do things, um, making that available to the public uh, certainly starts to create that transparency. And then, um, and then when you start to do that, you, you start to build some trust uh, and, and some relationships. And I think those three things are foundational to uh, really creating a better relationship with the community. You've got to have that, uh, uh, you've got to have that willingness to open your doors to, uh, to invite the public in. Uh, then, then you're going to start to build some trust and some, uh, some communication. You know, one of the things that we tried to do in Fayetteville um, was really uh, engage the community by, uh, by involving them in our training. Uh, as much as we could, we, we brought them in, let them audit, if you will, the, uh, the training that we did for our in-service classes. Uh, we did some of that for our uh, basic training classes so that, so that folks could see what it was that were, we were teaching our people. And, and, and so it allowed for more conversation, it allowed for better uh, conversation, uh, and again, uh, more involvement in the, uh, in the department. Uh, we also, um, over the years that I was in Fayetteville, engaged uh, members of the community to serve as assessors on our promotional boards. And now, uh, you know, what a, what a, everybody that's ever been involved in a, as an assessor in a, in a, um, a promotional board will tell you very quickly, it's a, it's a very difficult process. And so people were really surprised, our community members were really surprised uh, at the amount of work and the care that we put into our promotional uh, boards and and uh, and and then in the training we gave our evaluators. So the the, the more we can open up to the to the community that uh, we serve, the better off we're going to be. I had some detractors who said, "Well, we can't we can't share certain things because you know then they'll know what we do." Well, the the response is, "Go to YouTube. <laughs> You're going to be able to see everything, every tactic that we." Uh, that we employ and, and really every policy and procedure acted out in real time. So uh, nothing that we do should be considered secret. Um, uh, and, and I think we should open up our doors and, and our uh, business to our community. They own us, they are, they are part of us. Well, Chief, I'm, I'm glad you gave those examples, those local examples, because oftentimes, you know, in the national forum, we talk from the 30,000 foot level, right? And we talk about communicating with the community. You gave some pretty good examples of on the ground, field level, uh, giving the community a, a firsthand look at your training and your hiring and things like that. But uh, Dr. Champion, how else do we get, do we, do we bombard the community with uh, news briefs or bulletins or, or how, how do we get that general message across to the community? Well, I think there are several strategies and I think the, uh, the chief alluded to one is making sure that the department is open to inviting the community in. Um, let me use an illustration from Fayetteville. Um, I was involved with a group called Greater Fayetteville United. It was born of a situation that occurred back in December of 1995 when uh, two um, skinheads who actually were soldiers at Fort Bragg ended up killing uh, two African-American uh, residents in our downtown, an area downtown, which was a lower kind of social economic uh, area. And that really drove home, I think, the point we needed to have better communications, uh, not only between ourselves and the community, but with the police department. 
And so out of that came a group of individuals that started meeting once a week to talk about various issues. And so it evolved over time to where when I left Fayetteville, that it was probably somewhere around 50 to 60 members representative of all cross sections of the community uh, from government to education, um, to small business, nonprofits. And one of the things I found very interesting was that at our meetings, either the chief Medlock himself or a representative would be at the meetings. And this was an opportunity for them to share information with us. It was a turn, in turn an opportunity for us to share information with them. And I remember one of the most productive uh, events we had was where the chief invited us to come down to his uh, crime stat meeting that he had once a week to sit in and see actually how they went through the process of looking at crime problems in uh, Fayetteville. And I know that the members of the Greater Fayetteville United really appreciated that. And I think a lot of the activities the police department does, and the chief can allude a little bit more uh, on those, is to get out there and have interaction with the community uh, running special events uh, that draw the community to allow them to have that one-on-one -on -one with police officers. And I think that's the key. You have to understand that police officers um, are just like you. The difference is they wear a uniform, they have a badge, uh, but they are representing our best interests. Well, those are great. Um ways to get to the community. Chief, Chief Medlock, you talked about uh, bringing the community people in. Who comes up with your message? Do you personally have a hand in it in an agency of your size or do you delegate it? I, I've been to some community meetings where maybe the chief, you know, designates someone without understanding the message and then it's not their message. So how do you make sure that doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, uh, early on, Jim, we had, uh, I think we had about 25 organized uh, neighborhood groups, uh, community community groups. Uh, when I when I arrived in Fayetteville in 2013, when I left, we had 44. Uh, and so our intention, we were purely intentional to try to have every neighborhood represented. Now, this is a this is a community of, of about a quarter million people, another 50 or 60,000 Fort Bragg soldiers that is very, uh, very much connected to the city of Fayetteville. Uh, and the way I did it was uh, required my uh, commanders and supervisors early on to attend those meetings that, that I, I ran, those community meetings. And they heard my message. And then, then we talked about what my expectation was, um, you know, as they, as they were able to represent uh, me in some of those meetings. Uh, and, and then for me, I, I was, I was that guy that never told anybody when I was going to be there unless I was invited uh, and I would drop in. Uh, there were some commanders that got it very quickly. So my assistant chiefs really picked up on it, were able to run those. Uh, and, and some of my commanders were really good at it. And then some of them were really bad. And, and you, you, you have to know that. And you have to be able to sit down with somebody and say, one of your commanders and say, look, you have strengths, but stand in front of a group and try trying to deal with you know, their concerns, their issues of their neighborhood, that's not one of them. So we're not gonna let you do that anymore. And uh, you know, again, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a willingness of the person in front of the crowd to not go in either with a chip on your shoulder or to allow yourself to be 
um, uh, to take any uh, to take personally any criticism that uh, that you that you get or that the police department gets, but it's really having the ability to listen uh, to the concerns, the issues, the complaints of the community, and and frankly, when you listen to them, at the heart of it, a lot of those really don't have to do with what we, what you would consider traditional policing issues. It's quality of life things that they want help with that they don't know anyone else in city government to, to go to, but they know the police department will get it done. So, so really it is, um, for me, it was exhibiting or, or demonstrating what my expectations were. Uh, it was me continuing over the, the life of my, my time in Fayetteville of, of uh, attending those meetings, chairing some of them or leading them or serving as the, as the whipping post in some cases uh, so that my people could see it. But this was not something that was new to me. This is something that really through uh, my involvement of community, with community policing as an officer, a sergeant, all the way through the ranks uh, during my time with CMPD that, that really became very natural to me. And I think it then, it then became very natural to my, my people in, in Fayetteville. Dr. Champion, so we're, we're talking about assembling community groups. What about the detractors? What's the, how do we, I don't want to say handle them, but how do we accommodate them or bring them in? The ones that, the defunders, the ones that are saying we don't need police or we, we don't want police there. How do you, how do you bring them into the, to the message, to the dialogue? Well, I'll have to say we were fortunate in, in Fayetteville that the people that participated in uh, the Greater Fayetteville United were there because they wanted to address a lot of the quality of life issues uh, that the chief mentioned. And so therefore they had a purpose being there. But if someone came in with, I think, questions about you know, law enforcement and what they do, do we really need to have them do this? I think part of it is education and, and educating them to the value added by well, law enforcement. And I think it has to be a very serious um, communication with them. And I wanna emphasize a point the chief made. That is that law enforcement has to listen, not hear, but listen and process what the community is saying, what individuals are saying are the issues and what are the problems. Because if you really want to get to the heart of solving a problem, we all know you've got to get to the core of what's causing the problem. But one of the things I've noticed that individuals that do possibly um, have some question about the, maybe the role of policing in their community is that often when they have a very favorable experience with a police officer that makes an impact upon them, makes a difference in their life, it starts to shift their perspective of policing. And it's not going to be easy. Chief, anything to add on that? What's what's the, so Dr. Champion, I hear you. you you're saying, I, I always say, please, as police, we don't educate the public enough. But a lot of times we don't actually hear what the public's saying to us. So Chief, what is the one clear message that you want everybody on your side of the table to know to get clear across to the community? Is it about use of force? Is it about personnel? Is it about crime? What's, what's that one important issue? Well, I don't, I don't know that it's what's important to the, to the police department or the police executive. I think it's what's important to the community. Uh, you know, a lot of times we, uh, we um, 
policing and sheriff executives and, and police officers up and down the ranks. We think we know what is important to the, the community or, or to particular neighborhoods, and we're way off base. Mm-hmm. I think we, you know, the, one of the reasons that we tried to organize neighborhood watch and neighborhood groups was to hear what their concerns were for their particular neighborhood. Some neighbors, neighborhoods needed, needed things that others didn't. And so I think if you start to really listen to what people are telling you, um, you know, that, that, uh, that you can then begin to start to work with them on, uh, you know, those things that are important to them. Um, and, 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 and having the, the, the breadth of community groups, both uh, community ge- geographic communities or neighborhoods, but then also communities of interest. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a great example, if you don't mind. I, I, we had, um, early in my time in Fayetteville, we had uh, in one high school, one night at a house party, we had five young fellows that, that lured and ambushed uh, another fellow student from the high school um, uh, and killed him. And we had, so, so what we had was a dead kid and, and five kids that were now charged with murder. And, and so I think about, you know, the, the things as I was standing there that night on the scene, I was ultimately just beside myself realizing that six families' lives are, are completely in disarray now because you've got five kids who, whose families have to worry about their future. You have a dead kid. And, and now what, what is it that I need to do? And, uh, and so uh, a night, the next night we had a, a neighborhood uh, watch meeting and, and uh, I, was, I was really lamenting, you know, wh- how do I know, how is this old white guy gonna find out what it is that's important to kids? I don't have children, I don't have grandchildren. So, so how can I better connect with these kids to find out what it is that they need? And there was a fellow that was at the back of the room a uh, hat pulled down low over his head, never said a word, but he stepped off at my question. He stepped off the wall and he said, Chief, if you want to know what the kids are thinking, go where they are. Go to the high schools and talk to them. The next day, I called the, uh, the principal of that high school who was in the same emotional condition that I was, and we talked. And we decided we were going to put together a group of kids from that high school just so I could go in and hear them. And, and so we did that. The following week, we put together some formal and informal leaders. And I walked in with uh, several of my officers. We sat in a circle with these kids and I said, I just want you to tell me what I need to know. Mm -hmm. And for the next hour and a half, we had a great conversation. And out of that, we bore four more, I'm sorry, three more uh, high school groups that we ended up calling the Chiefs Youth Advisory Councils. And and so every couple of months, I would go in and sit down and talk with them and, and really not talk, but just listen. Mm-hmm. And the information, the concern, the ideas that came from these young people were incredible. And things that none of us had really thought about from our perspective. Uh, those are the things that we have to think about that are a little bit outside the box. So we're, we're not going to a community group, uh, especially, uh, say, kids, and standing in front of them and lecturing, but sitting down with them and listening to them. And from that, for some, some great ideas, we, we were able to reduce youth violence, not through things that the police department thought of, but, thought of, but through suggestions from these, uh, these young people. They were really concerned. That's a great example. Hey, I would like to talk, I know Chief, you're involved in uh, body-worn cameras and their effectiveness and, and some of the issues surrounding that. I'd like to talk about that in a second, but first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. 
PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we are back speaking with Chief Harold Menlock and Dr. Darl Champion about transparency with the public and in our policy making. And we talked about some, some good uh ways to get to the public to find out what the problems are there. And Chief, great example about going to the sources of some of the problems. I'd like to ask you both, what about social media? Where's, where's social media, uh, how's the impact there? Is it helping clear some issues or is it just muddying the waters? Um, I know from my, my own experience going to community meetings and hearing about something I didn't know because it was discussed over social media, whether it was Facebook or Instagram or Nextdoor or Nixtel, Nixel or any of those uh, social media platforms. How, what's the message that we don't know what we don't know? So get the, get the information to us. Well, I'll take a stab at it first, Darl, if you don't mind. And, and I'll tell you, we, we decided we were going to use social media as our, as our information platform and, and not rely on the news media to, uh, to, to tell the story. So we would actually hold, if we held a press conference, we also recorded it. And, and in some cases, Facebook lived it, um, uh, the entire thing. And we would, we would uh, promote that. We would uh, then have the opportunity to opportunity to tell the whole story, not the 30 seconds or the, the minute and a half that the local news media or the three lines that the, uh, the local paper would give us, but actually put that out uh, with everything, uh, with videos, with, with body-worn camera or dash camera, but then answer all of the questions that the media gave us. So, so we were not only uh, trying to be transparent, trying to be upfront with it, um, we were letting the public hear every question that came uh, from, from the, those journalists, those, those folks that were in the media. And, and again, what it did was answer a lot of questions that sometimes your media will create uh, more questions or more concerns with their reporting. Uh, we were able to, to put a lot of that to rest uh, simply by putting it out live or, uh, and, and continuing to show it on our Facebook page uh, rather than rely on the media. And, and you know that's dangerous um, because I could mess up in the uh, in the press briefing or one of my uh, one of my folks could do that but you know what we're human beings mm -hmm. and uh, and so frequently we would have uh, uh, information that uh, that required of course the media to, to 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 try to drill me or drill one of my folks in a in a press conference on a, on a high profile situation um, but it gave us an opportunity to clarify and really tell the story of, uh, of what really occurred. So 
I mean, I am one of these great encouragers that when you have a press conference, when a department does, you should, the, the department should be producing that, putting it out either live or uh, making sure that that information is shared uh, in its entirety. And it's amazing the number of times the media got mad at us because they'd said, well, you're scooping us. And my response was, I have every bit as much right to video what, what you're asking me as you do to ask me the questions and, and uh, to hear what I have to say. It's more important for the community to hear everything than your version of it. Great comments from Chief Medlock on, on community uh using social media and actually using social media to get the message out from the agency. But how important is it to build trust, uh, Dr. Champion, when it comes to reporting crime rather than communities um, relying on social media to get the, the word to each other? Uh, how do we build trust to say, you need to start telling the police uh, the crime and the things that are uh, happening in your neighborhoods? Well, I believe that it is important that, you know, in the case of our community group, we had a platform, we had a uh, Facebook page, and we tried to put out information and we supported law enforcement uh, by sharing stories um, that, of what law enforcement was doing in uh, Fayetteville. And I think because we have such an emphasis on social media today, there's such a wonderful opportunity there that we can put all the, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly out there. We can put what are police doing that really is above and beyond? And I don't think we see enough of that within the media. We all see more of the negative aspects. But, you know, there's some great stories out there that law enforcement, um, you know, of actions they're taking uh, with the community that should be told. And I think it comes from being honest in what you're delivering, because I think if the community looks at this social media, be it Facebook, uh, they realize after a while that, hey, what the department's putting up there is what's being mirrored in the news. So there's a sense that, hey, they're being honest, they're being transparent. And I think that's the key. You've got to be able to ensure that what you're putting on the social media is as accurate as it can be and that you're being trustworthy and honest. Um, and like the chief said, yeah, you may make some mistakes, but yet you have the opportunity to apologize uh, you know, explain why you said what you said. But I think making that effort to provide the information to the public is so crucial in building this transparency between, you know, the community and the police. That's great. So that's sort of the overall uh, arching communication with the with the community. But when we talk about body-worn cameras and, and dash cams, Chief Medlock, I know you're working on some, some programs involving those things. If you have your own policy that you're not going to release a body-worn camera or dash cam video for seven days until it's fully investigated, but tonight on the news, we're watching uh, uh, one aspect that doesn't tell the story. How do you shift gears and say, you know, or how do you make the decision to say, you know, I'm going to forego our policy. I'm going to issue our rebuttal today. How's that working? Well, you know, Jim, I have to use two recent examples, uh, both of which I'm not working with these departments. I'd, I'm just looking at this as a consumer. One was the, uh, the incident in Columbus, Ohio, just a couple of weeks ago. 
the mayor, the police chief decided they were going to release that video immediately. And, and you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, brutal uh, video. But at the end of the day, that was a brutal situation uh, that those officers rolled into. Uh, but it, it's, it addressed a lot of the misconceptions that could be out there. The other was uh, the incident uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, where nine days after uh, the, uh, the incident occurred, the, the district attorney made a determination and held a press conference uh, and showed the body-worn camera video. And it put to rest, it, it didn't make everybody happy, but it put to rest a lot of the misconceptions and also misstatements in the community. I think that if you're looking at an immediate release, I think that is an excellent thing because what has happened has happened. And it doesn't really affect the investigation. It is what it is. Uh, and, and then for an investigation to occur and a DA to make a decision in nine days, I think is phenomenal uh, because so often we find that, uh, that uh, the investigations drag on for months. Uh, the community is still uh, unaware of what really happened. Uh, there's, there's mistrust building, there's anger building. And when the video is finally released, then everybody says in the community, see, I told you so. And they didn't want to release it because it was bad. Well, if it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. And we ought to talk about both of those things. Um, the, the issue really is uh, the amount of time it takes from the time that the incident occurred and the fact that the, uh, the executive will not talk about it because, oh, an investigation is ongoing uh, or we have to protect the, you know, the, the identity of the officer. Uh, I get that. We want to make sure our officers are safe, but they, it, it has happened. And sooner or later, that officer's name is going to be released. So as long as the families are, are notified prior to release, I'm all in favor of releasing that video as soon as possible because it really will not affect the outcome of the investigation. The facts of what happened right then are the facts. Uh, and, and I'd rather pull the scab off and let it bleed uh, one time than I would to, to, to pull it off two or three times. And that's what we find ourselves doing now across the country. And I'm speaking globally in most cases that it may be a month to six months before that video is ever released. And, and now we have our community who we're trying to build trust with saying, yeah, all along you've, you've uh, hidden this from us. So it may be ugly, uh, it may be brutal, but at the end of the day, that's what our people do every day. That's what our police officers and our sheriff's deputies do every day. That's what we pay them for is to, to go into danger and to take care of uh, dangerous people in dangerous situations. Right. And if I just add one thing, Jim, to that is I think until there's a national standard, uh, it's going to be very difficult because each state has its own laws pertaining to the release. And there's about nine states that are very restrictive in the actual release of videos. And often it's because they look at it not being, quote, a public record per se, or it's more emphasized criminal investigation or internal affairs. And until we complete that, we can't release the video. So that's the challenge is to get a national standard, I think. And I concur with what the uh, chief is saying. I think you're further ahead to get that up front and out there than to hold back on. For sure. And maybe that's our mistake in policymaking because exceptions to policy over and over again aren't really a policy at all. 
But to build that um, exception that, you know, unless there's a pressing need or a importance to the community um, clause in there, uh, we allow some of these things to take root. We've seen it, um, you know, where we have, you know, entire sports networks, the NBA or Major League Baseball or whoever, um, or newscasters and politicians making protests for what we know sometimes behind the scenes to be uh, not not so true as the message that's being put out there. So um, in your in your futurist uh, book and your or program uh, doctor, what's that say about um, taking an offensive or an, a, a, a proactive stance in releasing some of these uh, rebuttals to this sort of uh, false narrative out there. Well, I think it's important to be proactive. In fact, if anything, if you want to dismiss a myth, is to get the factual information out there and be able to substantiate as much as that information as you can to where the public can look at it and say, wow, I understand this. And I think it has a reinforcing effect. I think the problem is when you try to hold back on it, you realize over time you do, you see more misting you propose uh, oh there may actually be a conspiracy you know with the department uh, the reason they're trying to hold this back and not share it with us and I think that's the challenge of from the very beginning is establishing that rapport with the community that legitimacy that procedural justice that the community can come to trust you know the police department and uh, I think that's you know, that's, that's the key, but you have to be proactive. You can't be reactive to that. All right. Well, we've hit on some, some really overviews of an important topic. I'd love to talk with you more on uh, getting to the root of some of these issues. But uh, in wrapping up, I'm going to ask you, are we on track? Is law enforcement on track in solving the transparency issue in in meeting the community halfway, or where are we in the in the linear timeline? Are we halfway there, quarter there, or, or what's going to happen next? That's really going to make the solid connection. Well, I think in in my instance, I think that we're just getting started. There's so many issues out there, and you know, talking about policy development, you know, the the key to developing policy is that initial analysis of what's the problem. And then not only understanding, but getting to the core of what's causing the problem. If we can get to that point and begin then to move to develop effective policy, uh, be it in the form of uh, new laws uh, to departmental policies, I think we're well on our way. And there has to be leadership uh, there to move this issue forward. Uh, we've been talking about transparency, you know, for a long time. And I think, you know, we say, oh, we had these pivotal events. And so now we're going to make an, a, you know, a, an exerted, you know, effort to try to resolve this. Well, we've got to carry through with this. We have to come up with a better way to develop this transparency, not just to deal with the current situation, Jim, but to have an enduring and long-term effect. So we're, we're talking about the, you know, the long term here, developing that relationship with the, the uh, police and the community. Yeah, and, and Jim, I think too, uh, from my perspective, um, we're never gonna get to, to transparency until we get to know one another. Uh, you, you, 
I, I think one of the greatest compliments I could hear from an officer is when, uh, when I promoted one or transferred one and I had a community member who came to their promotion or their transfer uh, ceremony and they said, Chief, I'm so glad that, uh, that he or she is being promoted, but you took my police officer away. Uh, they were assigned to my neighborhood and I like them. And now you've got to give me somebody just as good uh, to replace them. And, and so he, having an officer or have a community member say that about them should be the greatest compliment uh, that they can have because they have a relationship. And once you have a relationship, then you can start to build trust. And, and until the police department trusts the community it serves and the community trusts the police department that serves it, we're never really gonna to get to transparency. So I think we, we have a long way to go. And I think it's, it's really a leadership uh, issue more than it is a frontline issue. We, we put a lot on our cops and our deputies, well, on our police officers and deputies, we put, you know, go out there and build a relationship. Well, how do, how do I do that? Tell me chief or tell me sheriff how I do that. And if the chief or the sheriff or the supervisor or the, the commander can't explain it and understand it and live it themselves and demonstrate it, these young officers, these young deputies never will get it. Uh, so we, we really have to, to determine that the responsibility on this is on the individual agency, the jurisdiction to, to, to do the reach out. And you can't do it all at one time. You have to do it one person at a time, one officer at a time. Uh, and it has to be something that is intentional and that is non-negotiable uh, internally and externally. Well, thank, thank you both. I think it's awesome that you both wrapped up with leadership as being the main point. And I think, I think that's sometimes where we stumble, even as a nation, when our political leaders or even our, our Department of Justice leaders criticize rather than offer leadership or changes or solutions. And we've got a big problem, not just in use of force, but in our drug policies, failed drug policies, nobody wanted us putting them in jail, but the harm reduction policy of legalization doesn't seem to be working either with between 80 and 90,000 overdose deaths last year. And that's, you know, that's just one, recruiting is another. And if we build trust within the communities, maybe we solve the recruiting problem as a, as a collateral benefit. So uh, any last words? I want to thank you both for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Well, thank you for I, having us. I just want to share this quick story, if I could. One of my deputy chiefs, Jim, if you'll just bear with me, but one of my assistant chiefs handled a committee meeting in 2014 in the midst of Ferguson and all of the things that were going on. And we had really started to, to build some bridges in our, in our communities, but we intentionally went out and, and, and visited with all of our neighborhood watches, all of our neighborhood groups, everybody that would meet with us, we told them we wanted to be there and, and hear them. And on this particular night, we had four different meetings in four different areas of the city. So I was handling one and my assistant chief, who's an African-American uh, fellow, great guy, still there with uh, FPD, was handling this meeting and telling the community all that we were doing as an agency to, to not let something like what was going on in Ferguson or Baton Rouge or New York or Baltimore happened in Fayetteville. And when he finished, this young lady who was an African-American lady stood up, young lady, she said, Chief, all of what you're saying is really good, but who's speaking for our side? And my chief the next day told me this. He said, she stunned me. And he said, it never occurred to me. He said, but this is what I said. 
when did we choose upsides? Mm. And, and you know what? It changed the tenor of the meeting, but that was a life-changing moment for me. When in this country did we choose upsides? And, and if we've done that, then we all need to get back on the same team. That's Thanks great, for having me. That's a great point. Thank you, Chief. Thanks, Doctor. Thank you, Chief. Um, appreciate you being on the show and for offering uh, your sage words. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can get in touch with me or any of the Policing Matters team at policingmatters at policeone.com, policingmatters at policeone.com. And we love reading your messages and uh, ask us about something. Ask these um, experts or mention uh, some experts you'd like to hear from or some issues, and we may mention you on our mailbag. Thanks again, gentlemen. Uh, I hope to talk to you again in the, in the future about leadership and training and recruitment, some of these other issues that are really pressing, and, and I think you've, you've both got a, a good handle on it. Well, thank you. All right. Take good care. All right. Take care.